0: For those of you who don't know me, although I'm looking around here, most everyone knows, my name is Ron Raines. I'll be filling in this evening for Pastor Marshall. Be in prayer for him. He is preaching a conference in Wyoming, so uh, he'll be there through Sunday. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Pastor Shaw will be in the pulpit Sunday morning, so you all have something to look forward to there. Um, Just by way of a few announcements this morning, just a reminder, uh, next Wednesday, September the 8th at 7 p.m., although We made it easy for us in this class, but all classes will meet here in the auditorium on Wednesday for congregational singing and prayer. Then we'll dismiss into our separate classrooms. Fortunately for us, they'll come to us and we get to stay where we are. So that's a good thing. Also, if you're in the choir or thinking about joining the choir, uh, choir will restart September 12th at 5 p.m. Meet in the choir room, which is the room to my left. Uh, Ages 11th grade and 12th grade through adults are welcome. Um, I know I was speaking with Pastor uh, Chidi a couple of days ago, and uh, Christmas cantata's is right around the corner, so I know they'll probably be doing a lot of preparation for that. So if you'd like to join the choir or just get back into the choir, uh, that would be the time and the place to do that. Also, too, Pastor Marshall had mentioned several times before, we're still looking for those people who might want to volunteer um, on an ongoing basis uh, to provide transportation for people who don't have a ride to church. It wouldn't necessarily be something you'd have to commit yourself to every service but just to have like a couple of people in a pool to call on so if you uh if you have the ability or the willingness to want to help those who can't get here on their own provide a ride to them uh just stop at the office or uh, i guess let myself or anyone on the staff or anyone know and they'll get you in contact with the right person all right so um we have been in study of uh 2 Samuel chapter 19, and uh, just by way of review, I just want to touch on a few little things before we jump into the portion that I hope to cover tonight. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to start my timer now so I don't hold you too long or I don't get so far ahead or behind of myself that uh, I miss out on what I want to share with you tonight. Um, So just uh, from a personal standpoint... um, I don't know if you appreciate as much as I do the fact that uh, on Wednesday nights we have this opportunity uh, to have a a Sunday school, a a, a learning opportunity to actually study the scripture. And though the things that Pastor Marshall has been teaching us... uh, are applicable to people other than just people of our age group. It's nice to have the opportunity to be somewhat more specific to the needs and things that we have here. So, I mean, we're not dealing with uh, necessarily brand new Christians or the or the traumatic teen years or uh, for some of you, you know, how to handle your firstborn baby uh, that type of thing. Uh, most of us are kind of past that and a little bit more well established. But uh, for General review, though, what's been nice about this is uh, we're systematically going through a particular part of Scripture. So you know every week before you get here, you know, where we're going to be on a Wednesday night as far as what we're going to cover. And I have found a personal benefit in knowing that. So I'm reading the, the, the chapter that we're in before Wednesday night. And I'm reviewing what Pastor Marshall has taught on Wednesday night, you know, on my own time during the week before the next service. And I think this is a good, valuable tool that we should all uh, start to implore in our own lives. Um, you know, just so you understand, uh, if God's doing what he's supposed to do, he is imparting to Pastor Marshall the wisdom and the understanding of what he wants him to teach But he wants him to teach that, not because that's the only means by which you're going to get that information. It's because he wants you to use that as a jumping-off place so that those things that God can speak to you in your own personal life, in your own Bible study, in your own Bible reading, in your own walk, and put into place those same things that he's bringing you as the pastor and revealing to you. So from God to him, but not just from him alone, but to us to have that same relationship and to understand the same things that God reveals to our pastor, God wants to reveal to us. And for those of you who want to spend a little more time and go a little more in-depth, there's all sorts of opportunities then for you to use this as a starting place and to build on it in your own Bible reading and your own Bible study. So just for sake of a refresher on just some basic principles on Bible study before we get into tonight's text, I just want to remind you a couple of basic premises about Bible study and how you should approach you're reading of the Bible and you're studying of the Bible. So there are three main perspectives when we look at Scripture. Uh, the first being a historical context. So obviously in a book like First and Second Samuel, in the book of Kings, and in Chronicles, we're dealing with a historical text. So we're hearing and reading and listening about things that literally happened. Okay, So quite often in the Bible, we can study things from a historical perspective. So just so so that we're clear, anything historically in the Bible, it's literal. These events really did happen. These aren't stories or myths or uh, concoctions of different stories thrown together. These are literal events that we're getting a historical reaccounting of, in God's written word. And unlike most textbooks, especially when they are concerning events that happened hundreds of years ago, or in this case, thousands of years ago, in worldly textbooks, uh, we don't have the benefit of the Bible in that the Bible is an omniscient, Um, account of what happened. So not only do we get to see or hear from the perspective of the author or the particular character in the historical account, but we get to be made privy of events of what other people were thinking and going on at the time because we have the perspective of God knowing all about what went on during that historical event. Uh, Also, too, it's important to understand that any historical references in the Bible to events of the Bible um, include what's called intentional inclusion, so you understand that, for example, in these passages that we've been studying in Second Samuel chapter 19, um, about David's return to the kingdom and about that period of time as he crosses over the River Jordan, uh, we get three particular accounts of three specific people: uh, Shemiai, Mephibosheth, and uh, Braziliai. Now, those, by all accounts, were not the only people present. As a matter of fact, the the passage tells us about how there were a thousand people of the tribe of Benjamin there, and in all likelihood, there were numerous different people there, but God chose to specifically include the stories of these three people. So we can know because God's hand in this, that he is including certain things for a reason. It's not just a random thing. Oh, by the way, so-and-so showed up or this happened then. He's purposefully including these things in this historical account for a reason. And then finally, um, you have the benefit, uh, in historical biblical text, that to know that there is a single author... Now, many different people, you know, these books are accounted to Samuel under the inspiration of God, but the fact of the matter is, as all the books of the Bible, no matter who the handwritten author may have been, were all divine scripture by the word of God, so you have uh, unity and clarity in that there's a single authorship of all the historical accounts in the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. Uh, That's a benefit uh, that you have of having that consistency of the author. So uh, historical is pretty much obvious um, in that uh, it's a historical account, it's a literal account. Now, another way to look at the Bible is not just from getting the facts and the figures of the historical account, but uh, looking at it from a spiritual perspective. And this is more or less not what happened, but how it applies to me as an individual. What benefit can we take as Christians from what God has provided us in the Scripture? So uh, when it comes to a spiritual look at the scripture, uh, there's two ways you can look at it. There's going to be literal accounts, and there's going to be allegorical accounts. So for example, a literal account would be like what we were just studying. Uh, for example, we, two weeks ago we learned about uh, Shimei, and Pastor Marshall brought out uh, the emphasis on judgment and what it meant to be judged, and how we're all going to be judged. And so God used Shimei and his account in this historical context as a spiritual means for us to learn the concept about judgment and how that can be applied in our own lives. Um, there are both examples and in-samples. There are examples of how we should behave, and there are in of how we should avoid or not behave in a certain way. So uh, it, you know, what, does anyone remember last week who did we study? Who did, who did David meet at the river? He wasn't here. Okay. Who was here? Somebody was here. It was Mephibosheth, right? So uh, we had an example in Mephibosheth. And does anyone remember what the spiritual application Pastor Marshall taught about Mephibosheth? What, what was the key word that he took from the text? Anybody? Slander right? It was about slander. So here we had two examples of literal events, things that really happened, and that there was a spiritual application that we could learn and key in on uh, aspects that were present in that situation that could lend themselves to our everyday life as Christians. Now, in 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 looking at the scripture from a spiritual standpoint, um, not only are there literal accounts in the Bible of things that we can make application from, but there are also allegorical things. And when I say allegorical, I mean things that are a picture or a type. So, for example, everyone is familiar with the picture of the potter and the clay? And that would be allegorical. There didn't necessarily have to be a literally named potter, and there wasn't a particular necessary piece of clay But the allegory or the picture or the type is that God is the potter who shapes us, the clay, with his hands, and we can take a spiritual application from that lesson without it having been a literal event that was recorded. Uh, The same would be an example of, uh, in the book of Revelation, that talks about the seven churches. And there were seven literal churches, and there were seven literal letters to those churches. But... uh, they're also then representative of uh, seven ages of the church age. There are also seven types of churches that have been and are in existence at any given time. And they're also representative of, of seven types of Christian uh, attitudes and beliefs that you can in. So there's multiple applications um, in the Bible of things that are allegorical that aren't necessarily taken from the literal context of what they did. All right? Now, the third, not to say that these are the only things, but I've broken it down into three things. The third way to look at Scripture is prophetical. You know, what will happen? And just like in spiritual applications in the Bible, when we look at the prophetical context of a passage or a piece of Scripture, there could be both a literal, direct revelation of a future event. So, for example, the Bible tells us that someday there is going to be a rapture. That's a real, literal event. And the Bible tells us, we might not know the hour, or the time, or the day, but with certainty, it is going to happen, and it's literally going to be a rapture. Like, the Bible, the Bible doesn't use the word rapture, but we understand that it will be taken up, uh, and we understand the concept of the word rapture. Another example would be the tribulation. We know that there will be a tribulation. The Bible prophesies prophetically. It, it tells us about a literal event in the future called the tribulation. Um, The millennial kingdom. We know that God will reign for a literal thousand years on this earth in the millennial kingdom. We have numerous prophecies that tell us that this literal event is going to take place. Now, in addition to the literal direct revelation of fact within scripture, we also can find uh, allegorical references. These would be indirect revelation through patterns or types which provide personal application to prepare for a future event. And what I want to do tonight is kind of go back and look at the three people that David met at the river. And I want to look at it from a from a prophetical standpoint. And bear with me because not all pictures and all types necessarily hold up to all scrutiny, um, you know, 100% of the way in every case. But I see some clear things here that I think after I lay out the groundwork that you might agree with me on. Now, before I get into the context of this, I want to show you what the, the way to look at... Uh, prophetical scripture might be a little bit different. I know from my personal perspective that a long time, I shouldn't say a long time ago, I'm not that ancient, but uh, I used to be fascinated, you know, with the prophecy of the Bible and end times, and the the world seems to be that way too. And it's all about, uh, oh, I know something you don't know. Or, oh, I can see the secret revelation that, you know, when God says this, he means that. Uh, I remember as a child, a young well, a young adult growing up in the 70s, uh, Hal Lindsey in the late great Planet Earth, and everyone's into end time prophecy and everything. And I can remember a time when my dad and his brothers got in a literal fist fight with with each other because the one brother insisted that you know those those beasts that are going to have uh, uh, scorpion tails and sting men. Why those are helicopters. And I remember my dad saying, but "No, the Bible's literal. You're, it's not uh, allegorical." And they literally went to blows over whether it was going to be a literal beast or if it was going to be you know some uh, man made thing that we could explain away. But uh, I say all that to say this, I've come to realize that um, the reason why you should look and study the Bible prophetically is not so much that you have any kind of specialized knowledge, but bear with me, I'm going to go off track for a minute and you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Uh, now we need some participation. If you, could, if you could have any superpower, what superpower, Ray, would you like to have? What would you like to do? Fly, that's a common thing. Gabe, if you could have any superpower, what would you choose? Wisdom. Wisdom, Wisdom. that would would be a superpower we could all use. Uh, And and maybe invincibility. Uh, Flying is always a famous one. What about the ability to know the future? Wouldn't that, I mean, haven't there been many movies and uh, literature and things around someone who can know the future? You know, they know some terrible event's going to happen, and they have to race to warn people against it. Or, uh, well, I mean, just as an example... Uh If you could tell the future, what are some of the things you would do? So, for example, uh, if you knew who was going to win the next Super Bowl this year, what if I could take you in Scripture, and beyond a shadow of a doubt, God reveals in the Scripture that the Detroit Lions are going to be the next Super Bowl winners. Now, that would have to come from the Bible for that to be true, but let's just imagine that beyond a shadow of a doubt, there was direct revelation that that was going to happen. Some certain things are going to happen, like I don't follow sports, but all of a sudden, I'm to be a Detroit Lions fan. I'm going to wear Detroit Lion gear. I'm going to wear a Detroit Lion hat because I want to get on board with the winning team. And everyone I come to, I'm going to say, hey, this is the year. This is the year the Lions are going to win. And I wouldn't care what everyone said or if they laughed at me about it or tried to tell me how it was never going to happen because I had God's proven word that it was going to come to pass. So knowing that prophecy would change my behavior right now. Um, Another example would be if you knew for certain which new startup company was gonna be the next Apple or Amazon, what would you do? You would buy stock, you would sell everything that you had, you would live like a pauper to buy more and more shares of that stock. You take three or four extra jobs. You, I mean, I understand, well, oh, I'm not greedy, brother Ron. I i wouldn't do that. No, you would do that. You you would go into debt to borrow money to invest in that company. As a matter of fact, you would urge all your friends and family. You would tell them, no, this is a sure thing. It's guaranteed. I've got it in the Bible. It's going to come to pass. We need to get on board with this we We need to take advantage of this. We're going to reap great rewards from this. And you would do it. And then what if you knew exactly when and where the next natural disaster would occur? What if in Scripture it had been revealed that there was going to be a Category 4 hurricane that was going to hit down south like it did, but you knew a year in advance... Well, the first thing you would do is you'd make sure not to be there when that day came, right? At the very least, you'd make sure that you avoided being near there or anywhere around there when that was going to happen. But, you know, given enough time, you'd probably start to warn people about it. You'd probably make every effort to say, Hey, look, I know this sounds crazy, but you've got to get out of there. You're all going to burn up, or you're all going to get flooded out, or you're all going to die. The tornado's going to hit at 3 o'clock on Tuesday night. You've got to be prepared. And some people are going to think you foolish for saying that, but you're going to be adamant about it because you know with certainty that God prophesied that that event was going to happen in the future. As a matter of fact, you might even go so far as to realize that you won't be there yourself, and you've warned as many people as you could, but you might even take steps then to prepare for those people who are gonna be there who won't heed your warning. Maybe you go ahead and you got supplies there, uh, you uh, had bunkers built, uh, you, put, you built a dam, you did something, you, you sent generators there, so you would keep yourself safe, you would warn as many as you could, and you might even go so far as uh, to make arrangements to provide for those who didn't even believe or heed the warning, who were going to get stuck in this certainty, this tragedy. So, let's look now then at a prophetical application of what we've looked at for the last two weeks with Shimei and Mephibosheth, and then we'll wrap up with Brasilia. And just to understand that... Uh, we're not going to look at this prophetically for the sake of saying, oh, I learned something new, or I know something that someone else doesn't know. But understanding that just like all the other ways to look at Scripture, what's the practical application? How does this apply to me now today in my life? And what am I going to do with this prophetical information when I walk out of this building tonight? Okay, so you kind of get an idea of where we're going with this, what I'm talking about. Alright, so, as I had mentioned, I've made it my practice over the last couple of months. Um, I like to review what Pastor Marshall taught in class to myself, and some things come to me that are totally lame, and I'll share them with my wife, and she'll say, no, go back and look again. Uh, other things, she'll say, oh, wow, that's great, and, and I like to share those with people, I like to discuss those things with people, and, uh, you know, as much as we we're quick to talk about what's in the news or what's going on in sports, you know, we really should make Take more of an effort amongst ourselves when we're here at church or when we're socializing to talk about what's going on in our lives spiritually. You know, what has God revealed to you through the text? What have you learned from what you're being taught here? What has God shown you, you know, in addition to what he taught you from the pulpit? What did you gain from your own study of the Bible, from your own reading of the Bible? And that should be the number one topic of our conversation when we get together, you know, talking about, hey, what did you think about what he said last night? Or, hey, when I read this passage, do you think that might mean this or that might mean that? And there's nothing wrong with being wrong. Um, you know, we're not asking you to stand up and teach doctrine to the whole congregation. But you should be excited and, and interested in the things of the Lord, just as much as you are as whether or not Afghanistan fell or your team is going to make it to the you know, championship or who got traded to who. So, uh, like I said, by way of review, before I go any further, I am going to need a drink. Okay, so uh, after having listened for the last couple of weeks of what Pastor Marshall preached on, um, I kind of noticed something. So there's a general, oh did I lose my microphone? Okay, thank you. All right, well at least you can still, still hear me. Uh, if anything goes wrong with the sound, blame Mrs. fellman She said this is her first time solo up there. So I, prom- I promised her that we would point her out and objectify her if anything goes wrong. So Now, it could put me in a dangerous position because she has control over how I sound from up there. If I start sounding like Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse, you'll know why. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I started looking back at this, and quite often um, in Scripture, when we see things in sets of three... It's usually a a good idea or a good warning or a red flag that, hey, maybe there's more to this. God likes the number three. He likes to put things in perspective in sets of three. And for all the people who showed up that day as the king crossed over the River Jordan, uh, he he focused on the stories of three particular individuals. So initially I thought, well, there's got to be more to this. And meets the eye. I mean, of all the people that were there that day that, that he chose not to tell us about, what's unique or specific or or what relates these three people and their three events to each other? And then I started thinking about something as I was reading through the text, and here we are. David is obviously a picture and a type of our Savior Jesus Christ. Okay? And he had left Jerusalem being overthrown by Absalom. He leaves the city of Jerusalem, and he leaves in somewhat of disgrace and mockery, and he now is returning triumphantly as the king. And he's crossing over the Jordan, and he's getting ready to reenter into the kingdom and take his rightful place on the throne, and there's three different types of people who are there to meet him. And I said to myself, well, you know, this looks a lot like the, the physical millennial return of Jesus Christ to the Millennial Kingdom, to the nation of Israel, to crossing over the Jordan and taking his rightful place on the throne. And I wondered to myself, you know, maybe these three people are a picture or a type of those same type of people, uh, representative of the picture or type of the people who are going to be present at that millennial return, as Jesus Christ starts his reign in Jerusalem. So, you may not agree with me, but let me just run through this kind of quickly and share a little bit of this with you, and see what you think. The first person that we account- encountered was Shimei. And Shimei's name means to hear or to obey. And as you recall from Pastor Marshall, he taught about uh, judgment. That's a little bit more true about what I thought about, about how there's going to be a judgment of us all, before we enter into that millennial city. That we'll all stand before Christ and we'll be judged and we'll give an account of our lives here on earth before we enter into that millennial reign with him. And if you, th- if you remember in Judges, I'm sorry, in Second uh, Samuel, in chapter 16, it said in Shimei, Shimei the son of Girah a Benjamite, which was of Baharim, Hasted and came down to the men, came down with the men of Jordan to meet the king, and there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons, and his twenty servants with him, and they went over Jordan before the king. And they went over a ferry boat to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was come over Jordan. Now, isn't 100% clear to me from the text, and maybe you have some insight on this personally, but uh, I can't tell if Shimei was on the Jerusalem side of the Jordan, and when he saw King David coming, that he crossed over with his men in the ferry boat and met David, and then they crossed back over on the ferry boat? Or did he maybe start on the other side of Jordan with King David? But in any event, they waited. he waited until the king had entered the city, had crossed over Jordan, and was on his approach to Jerusalem. And that's when he decided, you know, that he was going to confront the king. Now, what's interesting is, is that if this picture follows through, Shimei would be a representation of uh, both the Old Testament Jews and those Jews which come through the tribulation, those who endure to the end. These are people who, in this case, Shimei never left the kingdom. He was already in the kingdom. Just like the Uh, Children of Israel have a covenant with God that they someday will rule with him, that they will have an earthly kingdom. Now, not every single Jew is going to be able to take advantage of that circumstance, but that is something, a place has been provided for them and is guaranteed for them. So when Shimei, so just taking point that Shimei was already in the kingdom when David returned. Just like the Old Testament saints, as well as the Jewish remnant in the tribulation, God's covenant with Israel and his very dispensations made a way possible to preserve and secure the means for them to have a place in the kingdom. Okay? I'm going to move through some of this stuff kind of quickly for the sake of time. Now, secondly, he had first put his trust in the reign of Saul. So you remember when David was leaving, and all he called him a bloody man, he told him he was a usurper, that he was just getting uh, paid back uh, for taking the kingdom away from Saul? Well, just like those Jews who thought their hope was in the law and they considered themselves in God's favor because of their perceived status as the chosen people of God, they chose to cling to the old ways the law, the prophets, rather than acknowledge the presence of their true king, Jesus Christ, when he was physically in their presence. Uh, Thirdly, uh, Shimei had mocked and cursed King David upon his departure. And I mean, that seems like an example or a perfect picture, uh, just like when those who denied and rejected Christ's kingship as he departed the city for the crucifixion. So there seems to be a parallel there, uh, just like our Christ was mocked and rejected by the people of Israel as he was turned out and denied his kingship. We have no other king but Caesar. Uh, So was David when he was cast out of the city and he left in rejection. And then we finally see that Shimei openly asked for mercy and acknowledged David as the true king at his return. And I couldn't help but think that, uh, as he said unto the king, let not my lord impute Iniquity unto me. Neither do thou remember that which thy servant did perversely the day that my Lord the King went out of Jerusalem, that the King should take to his heart. So, I mean, does that could that not be the same thing that uh, a Jew is going to say to Jesus Christ upon his return to the millennial kingdom and say, Lord, don't, I know what we did and said at your crucifixion. I know that we denied you as King, but don't take what we did perversely to heart, Lord, Uh, don't don't impute that to us. And those Jews, through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the covenant, are going to have that means to enter into the kingdom. And just like David showed mercy on Shimei, so shall the Lord show mercy on them as they enter into the city, into that millennial kingdom. Um, What's interesting, sort of as a side note on this... um, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, do you remember when David was departing the city? And uh, I'll read from chap- I'll read from verse 23 in chapter 15, and all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kedron. And all the people passed over towards the way of the wilderness. And Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of the God, and Abathar went up until the people had done passing over the city. And the king said, carry back the ark of, the, of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both It and his habitation. Now, I only mention this for what I'm about to say next. It's interesting that the Ark of the Covenant is a literal representation of God's covenant with the Jews. That's why they call it the Ark of the Covenant. And David didn't want that Ark to leave the city of Jerusalem. It was meant for the people of Israel. It was to show that specific relationship, that covenant that God had with those people. And he didn't want it to cross over uh, the Valley of Kedron or the Brook Kedron. And it's kind of interesting. Now, what's really interesting is, I was curious, well, whatever happened to Shimei? Because, you know, David spared his life. He told him, don't worry. No one's going to die this day. I promise you're not going to die. Well, I noticed that in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 36, and uh, Solomon's on the throne now. David's already passed away, but Shimei is still alive. And, and, the, and verse 36 says, And the king sent and called for Shimei, and said unto him, Build thee a house in Jerusalem, and dwell there, and go not forth thence any whither." So he says, your home's in Jerusalem forever. Build a home here in Jerusalem. Stay here in the the kingdom. Stay at the capital. Stay in Jerusalem. And in verse 37 says, For it shall be that on the day thou goest out and passest over the brook Kidron, thou shalt know for certain that thou shalt surely die. Thy blood shall be upon thy own head. So basically he's telling him, look, build a house here. Live and enjoy everything that my father promised you. Uh, Have safety in your life in the kingdom. But the day you cross over the Brook Kidron, the same place where he wouldn't let the covenant pass over, know for sure that you're going to be a dead man and that your blood is in your own head. And what's interesting is it reminded me of a passage in Revelation in chapter 29, verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates of the city. For without our dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, whomsoever loveth and maketh a lie. So, you know, you and I, as born-again Bible-believing, saved-by-the-blood-of-Jesus-Christ Christians... We don't have to enter in and hope that we, or even need to take from the tree of life. Who is this a reference to? This is a reference to those who were saved out of the tribulation. These are a reference to those people who need and are born into the, during that millennial kingdom. And it just seems interesting to me that, that just like Shimei, if the picture is complete, those people need to remain uh, there in Jer- in Jerusalem. They need to eat and take from that tree of life. And outside of that, there is no guarantee. There is no life for them. So like I said, this, this might not be a picture that you agree with or you might have your own conjecture about it. But the second person that he encountered at the River Jordan was Mephibosheth. And uh, from the passage it said, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. And this is the part that stuck out at me. From the day the king departed until the day the king came again in peace. Now, to me, if I'm going to make spiritual, if I'm going to make prophetical application and I'm saying that this has something to do uh, with uh, the millennial reign or with the judgment seat of Christ, then... Clearly from the day the king departed until the day the king came again in peace, if David is a picture or a type of Christ, then that's definitely a reference to the church age. That's, that's where we are. That's who we are. Uh, Christians from the time that uh, Jesus Christ departed Jerusalem, was crucified and ascended up into heaven, till the time that he returns in peace, that, that to me is a picture of the church age. So I'm seeing Mephibosheth as a type or a picture of a church age Christian. And that being said, think of this, he was the descendant of a fallen and rejected king, Saul, just as we once were the children of the devil. Yet the true king showed him great mercy and not only spared his life, but bestowed his grace upon him by giving him food and shelter and lands, and then clothed him and gave him a place at the king's table in the position of a chosen son. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we were of our father the devil, that... We were bestowed grace and mercy and spared, just like Mephibosheth should have died, as all the other members of the house of Saul, David showed mercy on him, just like our king, Jesus Christ, has shown mercy on us. And not only mercy, but grace. Just like Mephibosheth, uh, we're going to be clothed in a robe. We're going to eat with the Lord Jesus Christ at his own table and will not just be heirs but joint heirs like sons of God. Uh, this just seems like a perfect picture here. Um, and just like Mephibosheth though, a great number of believers will enter into the kingdom on that day having left this world shoeless, disheveled, and unclean, and still will have joy to enter into that city as the Son of God. And also like Mephibosheth, how many of us who were blessed beyond measure while in this world will have nothing to show but wood, hay, and stubble after the judgment seat of Christ, entering that kingdom having squandered the opportunities that we had been given. You know, it said Mephibosheth hadn't shaved, hadn't bathed, hadn't cut his hair or Cleaned his, uh, trimmed his fingernails from the day that from the day that David departed until the day we return, and I'm just wondering if we follow this picture through in our in our own lives, are we Christians who have been blessed and given all these opportunities, both in this present world and in a future kingdom to come, and have we just? Bided our time, waiting for Christ to return, uncle- unclean, unshaven, not taking advantage of, not utilizing all the gifts and things that He had given us. And are we going to be there? Sure, we're going to we're going to have an opportunity to go into eternity as a saved Christian. That's not going to get taken away from us. But what what heavenly rewards? What eternal rewards? What opportunities will we have squandered because all of our earthly things were just hay, wood, and stubble? You know what did we do? when we see the Lord at that day in his kingdom. I mean, we're all going to be great and jubilant that he's going to have a triumphant return, that he's going to finally reign and the whole world's going to know. But we're going to be ashamed if we show up there with nothing. That, that, that we, Oh, I, I just bided my time, Lord, until this day. I'm just so glad that I'm here and that you're here. But I would hope that we would want more to show for ourselves on that day. Take one more drink. So, that brings us to the third person in the text, which is Barzaliah. His name meant man of iron. And it says, and Barzaliah the Giladite came down from Roglim and went over Jordan with the king to conduct him over Jordan. Now, if you want to follow the, the picture and the type of what I've been presenting so far, it's my belief that... Uh Barzillai is an example of the type of believer that we should all strive to be. And let me tell you why as we read through the passage. It says, uh, Now Barzillai was a very aged man, even fourscore years old. And he had provided the king of substance while he lay at Manim, for he was a very great man. So here's a man who had always been faithful to the king. He was a man he was an aged man he was a man who obviously had uh, been a good steward with whatever he had been blessed with because in a time of need of David he had enough goods and wealth to be able to be a blessing and provide provision for the king and I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's what we should be doing. You know, the things that God instills us with in this world, uh, are we being good stewards of those things? Are we setting them aside and preserving them so that we can use them not for our own blessing, but to somehow bless the King, to bless our Lord, to bless Jesus Christ? Um. And uh, he was an aged man, you know we talked about the fact that uh, we're we 're of a certain age group in here now all of you, not many of us in here are four score eighty years plus some maybe i don 't see a whole lot of us who quite make it to that age group, but you should be someone at this point in your life who is steadfast and strong in your belief in Jesus Christ, and you should not be tossed about uh, by winds of uh, doctrine and fables. You should be pretty clear on what your stance is in your walk with Jesus Christ, and you should be at that point where you're building and using what God gave you for his glory and for his honor. Um, it goes on to say, now there was a man that had, or I'm sorry, it goes on to say, now uh, I apologize, I lost my place here. Ah, the, uh, the verse says, Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king, and why should the king re- recompense me with such a reward? Matter of fact, tell you what, we got enough time. Let me just read real quick the passage, and then I'll finish going through it. So if you want to follow along with me, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 31. 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 31. And Barzillai, the Gileadite came down from uh, Rogilim and went over Jordan with the king to conduct him over Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a man, was a very aged man, even four score years old. And he had provided the king of sustenance while he lay at Mahanamin. Uh, he was a very great man. And the king said unto Barzillai, come thou over with me, and I will feed thee with me in Jerusalem. So he's saying, look, we're... We're about, I'm about to re-enter into my kingdom. I'm about to cross over Jordan and Jerusalem. Come with me. Thank you for all the things you had been a help to me in the past for. But come with me now. Share in my triumphant return. And Barzillai said unto the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king unto Jerusalem? I am this day fourscore years old, and, I can, and can I discern between good and evil? Can thy servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men and singing women? Wherefore then should thy servant be yet a burden unto my lord the king? So here's a man who says, look, I, I, king, I understand, but I've lived a, I've lived a good life. I'm closer to the end of it than the beginning of it. And you know what? Uh, food's good, but it's not that important. I, I can't even taste food anymore. You know, song and, and, and merriment and, and all that fun festivities, that's all in good, But but I've had my fill of that. I don't need that anymore. Well, I don't have ears to hear, I don't have mouth to taste. And I think he was being a little bit facetious in that he probably still could taste food and enjoy food. He could probably still hear uh, songs being sung. But what he's trying to convey is this: those things aren't what's important to me any longer. I've lived a long life. I'm just glad that I could be in service to my king. I'm just glad that my king is finally here to take his rightful place and be restored to the kingdom. And you know what? Those, those rewards might be fine for other people, but I don't seek those earthly rewards. I'm not seeking food to fill my belly or music or song to fill my ear. I want something more substantial. So as we go on, it says... Thy servant will go a little way over Jordan with the king. And why should the king recompense me with such a reward? Let thy servant, I pray thee, turn back again, that I might die in my own city, and be buried by the grave of my father and my mother. But behold, thy servant, Shimhem, let him go over with my lord king, and do with him what shall seem good unto thee. So he says, look, i 'm not taking anything away from you king david i 'm going to go over to the Jordan with you for a while and uh, i 'm going, going to go with you you know to jerusalem but i 'm going to turn back i don 't need to be here. I, I have a place of my own, I have things to do I, I want to return to my own people, my own place and you know in some ways, uh, maybe that should be our attitude you know uh, it shouldn't be about what we're going to do or what we're going to have in a millennial kingdom. It should be about what God is going to do and what God is going to have. But here's what's interesting. is he didn't want the reward for himself, he asked, he said, look, you know, uh, why don't you take this other guy? Why don't you take my son with you into the millennial kingdom? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, here's, here's where our focus should be. Not we we should do everything we can in this lifetime, in this world, to prepare for that judgment seat of Christ. We should make sure that we have things that will make a difference in eternity. That we'll have something to show for everything that we do and have in this world, and that we take every single thing that God blesses us with, and we are good stewards of it, and use it to be a help to our King, to use it for his profit and his gain. And then talk about a perfect picture of a perfect Christian. When the time comes then for you to receive your reward of Jesus Christ, for you to reign and rule with him, you're less concerned about you getting the glory or you getting the benefits. You're just happy to be there with the king. But the thing that lays heavy on your heart, even at this time when all the tribulation has ended, is who else can I see get into the kingdom? Who else can I see know the king like I knew the king? Who can be blessed by the king like I was blessed by the king? Who can share and have that? So when I started this evening, I mentioned to you that the purpose of prophetical revelation is the personal application. And the fact of the matter is that just like those three hypothetical things that I mentioned, you know, uh, what if you could tell the future? You can tell the future. There's going to be a day when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will be judged for those acts that we did here on this earth, and we'll have to give account, and it will be determined whether what we did was for our own benefit or whether it was for his We'll also have to... have that opportunity, just like I said. You know, what if you knew who the next winning team was going to be? It's Jesus Christ. He's going to win. We know how the story ends. There's no doubt about it. So you can get upset and you can have despair about how the whole world's turned upside down, how our political system is corrupt, how America isn't the god isn't the god fearing nation that it used to be, how everything uh, that's right is wrong and everything that's wrong is right. Uh, but here's the thing be happy, be excited, talk about the winning team, because in the end, Jesus Christ wins. We win. So, if you would put on the Detroit Lions logoed t-shirt and hat and paraphernalia, and you'd brag about your team, brag about your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brag about what you know is a certainty. You know the future. He wins. He sits on the throne. We have an eternity with Him. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. So, live your life today based on that prophetical revelation that you have of the future. What was the second example I gave? Uh, What would you do if you knew for certainty who the, the next big startup was, how you could get rich? Hey, did we just not understand and realize that the things we do on this earth build eternal wealth for us? Um, in, in in a millennial kingdom and I didn't go a lot into the scripture of it but you know there's going to be crowns that you receive um there are going to be rewards that you receive. You are going to, if I read the scripture right, we're going to rule and reign over cities in eternity based on our faithfulness with what God gave us while we were here on this earth. So your goal should be this. If you know with certainty that there's an opportunity to have eternal rewards for all of eternity, to have crowns to cast before your king. Have you ever gone to a birthday party and everyone got somebody these really great gifts and you didn't even bring a gift? How embarrassing would that? How are you going to feel when Christ enters in triumphantly and everyone else is throwing their crowns down at his feet and you've got nothing? You just got to hide back in the corner humiliated. To have that ability to take what you have, the opportunity you have now, to build that certain and future wealth in eternity. You'd do it if it was the next Microsoft or the next Amazon. Why aren't you doing it now to build an eternal reward? And not just for your own benefit, but to be a benefit and a provider for the things of Jesus Christ for in this world and in a millennial reign. And then lastly, I said, uh, what if you knew exactly when and where the next Natural disaster would occur. You would do everything possible within your grasp to avoid that circumstance. And you would do everything within your power to warn other people about it. And you would go so far to make provision for their protection even when you weren't there. And just like wanted to make sure that Shim had a place with the king, so then should be our emphasis. We know a couple of certain things. We know that if you die without Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are going to go to hell. That is a certainty. That's a prophetical certainty that the Bible tells us. That's not sometimes. That's not maybe. That's every single time. So every man, woman, and child you come in contact with who dies without knowing Jesus Christ has a certain prophetical future, and that's in a lake of fire for eternity. And you have the ability to warn them and stop them from being there. Now, first and foremost, if you're not saved, just like if you knew where the tornado was going to hit, you wouldn't be there. If you haven't accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you have a warning of what's going to happen. Save yourself first. But assuming that we've all done that already, then the emphasis has to be on who are we warning? And look, not everyone's going to respond. You know, we knock on doors. We street preach. We witness to friends. We do lifestyle evangelism. It's not always going to have an immediate result. But that's not a reason to stop. There is a certainty. There's a certainty that this world will someday end. That there will be a terrible tribulation. That there will be a judgment seat of Christ. And that we'll see people tossed into a lake of fire. These are certainties. So not only do you need to get the gospel out there. But you need to make some preparedness. You know, I'm going to have Lord willing in six weeks, I'm going to meet my granddaughter, my first granddaughter. And chances are, Lord willing, she's going to outlive me. Now hopefully I'm alone. I'll am i be alive long enough and Lord willing to see her come to know Jesus Christ like I did. But you know I'm going to make preparation if I'm not here. I'm going to make sure that her parents, I made sure her parents were instructed and saved and I made sure that they're in a church and I did everything I could to try to build up that preparedness in that baby's heart, I mean in that baby's parents' heart. And as long as I have breath in my life, in my lungs, while that baby's alive, I'm going to make every preparation so that even if she goes the way of the world, she'll still have some opportunity, some legacy even after I'm long since gone to know. So what are you going to build up that lasts, both in this world and the next world? What are you going to do with your time, talent, and treasure so that two generations from now, there's still a Bible-believing Hope Baptist Church on South Avenue, when the whole world is on fire and taken over by the radicals or by some foreign entity or some demonic entity who knows what the future may hold, will this church still be here? Will you have, will you still be warning? Will you have prepared? And your number one priority shouldn't be about what you're going to get out of it, what you're going to have in eternity, but who's going to be there with you. Because I guarantee that as as happy and as excited as I'm going to be, I'll tell you, I, I'm of a perverse mind in some ways. I know that I probably will think different when the time comes, but I'm waiting to see all of those people who spit and mocked at my God, those people who think the Bible is foolish, today they have to bow that knee and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And you know what? They're going to get what they deserve. But that's not my place to be judge and juror. But the truth of the matter is, for every person who in this world I thought, well, they are going to deserve what they're going to get, how many men, women, children, friends, family members, coworkers are you going to see begging and pleading, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you do more for me? And all we're going to do is watch them bound and tied, it says, and we're going to be there chucking them into a lake of fire. So when you go out of this church tonight, make a decision. Who are you going to be? Are you going to be like that Old Testament Jew who's just going to rely on the promises of God and that he promised he'd save you if you trusted in Christ, and he will, is that all that matters? Or are you more like Mephibosheth, who God took you from nothing, gave you everything, gave you mercy, and showed you grace, yet when he returned, you had squandered it all, had nothing to show for it? Or are you going to be like Barzillai, who after a long life, had wealth that meant something, not in a tangible physical sense, but in the fact that you were a provider for God, his people, and his church, and your heart is more concerned about who enters into that kingdom than who doesn't. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us this opportunity to study your word. And Lord, I hope I haven't uh, misspoken or led anyone astray with my interpretation of what your word is. I think your word stands and speaks for itself. But Lord, irregardless of what I might think, these are truths that you have told us, Lord. These are things that we know will come to pass because your word says so. And Lord, there is no time like the present for us to... Do that which is right in your service. Lord, I would continue to pray for the needs of all those here, Lord. I would uh, ask that you would honor and bless these next 15 minutes or so as we seek you in prayer, Lord, uh, in couples uh, with other men or other women. And that, Lord, uh, you just put on our hearts what you would want us to pray about. Knowing, Lord, that you can hear prayer and answer prayer. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.